Good morning. Let's see. Sorry, I just need a second to adjust. And actually, I want to take a minute to scroll through the gallery <laughs> and just have a sense of all of you who are here. Um, when Corinne, Charlie, and I give the talks, we, um, we're also hosting it. And so we have to keep it. Anyway, basically, we'll only be able to see the last person who made sound. <laughs> and it's nice to see all of you here and have a sense of who's here. So good morning, my name is um, Dojin Sarah Emerson, if there are folks who are new, I think there's a couple names I don't recognize. And this is the online version of Stone Creek Zen Center. Um, we are, uh, both, both Corin, Charlie and I have been invited to talk at um, an ongoing practice period at the San Francisco Zen Center that's focusing on the Lojong training system. And yesterday I got to give a talk there about point, it's called point three. So it's a seven point training system or mind training system around um, how to cultivate compassion and, um, and how to deepen our life as bodhisattvas. Basically. And um, I wanted to share that it's been so helpful this past. So we knew about this. Actually, that invitation came from our Dharma sister, Mary Stairs, who's the head of practice there in October when we were, when we were sheltering at uh, the San Francisco City Center when we were evacuated from our homes. If you all remember our other wild ride that we've had <laughs> in these past like nine months. Um, and so in October, Mary asked, oh, would you like to do this? And so it's been in the back of my mind for many months, actually. And in these past few months, just spending time with this training system, which is something that um, we've studied before, has been so supportive that I realized I want to share this with folks at Stone Creek. Just I feel like this is something that's really grounding our, for our practice and, and actually kind of continues our, our ongo that we've just completed last week of looking at the Bodhisattva Paramitas because it, it, um, it's actually a deepening practice that, that opens us further into, it's almost like more detail or more of that, the advanced course on the Bodhisattva Paramitas. So um, over the next, maybe just over the next few months, um, we can take these up together um, when we're talking, when we're giving the talks. But before, before I dive in, I'd like to invite us all to come into our physical human bodies. So taking a minute, um, if you like, either lowering your gaze or closing your eyes, that's just an invitation, you don't have to. Um, just acknowledging for myself that this, this medium of being together through Zoom is very kind of... Um, concentrates me in my visual field so intensely that, that I can sometimes lift off and forget about my physical embodied experience. And I just wanna invite that to be part of what we're attending to this morning and really all the time and, and any, in any Dharma talk um, to account for ourselves, to factor our human embodied experience into one of the many things that we're paying attention to. So just give a couple moments here um, 
Noticing the sensations in our bodies. Noticing if there's some residue of something spinning in our minds. And without elaborating on any of it, just, just give a tender, um, kind of neutral, but loving attention. And I also want to invite that while we're here, kind of grounding in the body, that we also um, together invite a feeling of relationship to all the beings that have benefited each of us. We could say our ancestors, um, but I mean that most broadly. So all the people who have contributed to our well-being, to our lives, um, that might be our family, genetic or otherwise, and that also might be a sense of the lineage of wisdom that we are at the receiving end of, that we're lucky enough to have uh, encountered the possibility of, uh, you know, attending a Dharma talk on a Sunday morning even through Zoom, even in this strange situation we're all in, and really feeling um, in our lived experience the great benefit of all those conditions and all those people and all that effort. We can call to mind the people that have sustained this amazing mind training system, the system of, of developing compassion, and extend our gratitude to them. And we can also have a sense if we can ground ourselves in that um, and locate ourselves in that stream of benefit, then we can also in our imaginations extend this benefit forward into the future. We can have a sense of ourselves as being at the receiving end of, of you know, millions of beings and their efforts and their lives. Um, many people we will never know we can also extend that forward and have a sense of being of benefit to beings in the future who will never know us. But our effort and our intention and our acts of kindness and generosity and ethics and patience and wisdom, these have actually, in ways that we will never even know, extend forward and are of benefit in the future. And really locate ourselves in that, um, in the three times, past, present, and future. Thank you for <laughs> arriving here with me. Um, the Lojong training system, the word Lojong is a Tibetan word that just means mind training. And it, again, it's a, it's a system that is intended to really deepen the life and capacity of a bodhisattva. It's meant to uh, be the, the ground on which we can plant our seeds of bodhicitta, so the intention of wisdom. Bodhicitta, I think you know, it, it can literally be translated as a mind of wisdom, but I think it has such a beautiful, Dogen writes about bodhicitta and uh, 
several fascicles that he writes and talks about how there, bodhicitta is this beautiful thing in the world that's very, that's very, it arises a lot and it doesn't often flourish. Like he compares it to a fish egg. So it's something that it, it can, there's, there are plenty of them in the world, but for it to fully come to fruition, the conditions need to be um, cultivated around it to allow this beautiful, fragile thing. And I think if we look at that in our own lives, there's probably, it probably resonates for many of us. There's a deep intention to be loving and um, skillful and compassionate and kind and um, respond to the wor- this world of suffering with wisdom. And, you know, the conditions of our lives don't always support our responses to be those way, that way or those ways. And so this is actually, these, this mind training system is intended to say, okay, now that you've got this little seed of intention to respond skillfully in this world, here are some ways to make, allow that to flourish. I think of it as like, it's like the, a mind boot camp for aspiring bodhisattvas and it's a it's a way to ground ourselves that the as the, the whole system as a whole is a way to ground our activity in non-duality and and help us to come from a vantage point of of deep reality and versus a vantage point of delusion so i think that's that's like a foundation fun foundational thing in every one of these slogans. They're helping point us toward um, wisdom and compassion and away from a mind of tightness, of closeness, and of delusion, and of separation. Um, So that traditionally, this teaching was reserved for monks that had trained for many, many years in relationship with a teacher. And uh, it was brought, the, the, the story is it was brought by a man named Atisha from India to Tibet. And Atisha had to go through a lot too. The, the, the system had been developed. And it, the story, as I've heard it, is that it was now being held by a master that lived in what's now Sri Lanka. And Atisha had to travel from India to Sri Lanka to get this. And it, it was years and years of work to get there. It was years of work. Um, in relation with that teacher, and then came back to India. And then people in Tibet heard about it and asked Atisha to come. So these same slogans are also known as Atisha's slogans sometimes. And for hundreds of years, um, they were orally transmitted between teacher and student, and they wouldn't, people wouldn't be initiated or empowered to practice with them until they'd been training for many years. And there's good reason for that, actually, I would say. They're, um, one of the essential ingredients here is that we, or, or the, and the first point that I want to talk about today is to train in the preliminaries. So grant, be deeply, deeply grounded in practice and meditation and in um, these fundamental contemplations of, of human life. And without, because without that, some of these slogans, many of them actually can be really misapprehended and moralistically understood and cause harm. But then there, uh, after a few hundred years, there was a Tibetan teacher named Geshe Chekawa Dorje who taught it, who taught these slogans to a quote, unruly brother who had no interest in Buddhism and noticed that the more he taught this unruly brother, the more his behavior changed and he actually became um, a kinder and wiser human being. 
And so um, Chekhova is credited with writing them down. So it changed what they were in the world. Now they were something that people could get their hands on. So there was more, there was more wide access to them. And then this began hundreds of years of commentaries. There's a whole tradition in the Tibet in the Tibetan lineage of commentaries on this. So it's a huge um, part of, of the Buddhist tradition. And in recent times, um, Chogram Trungpa and his student Pema Children have written quite a lot about it. Pema Children has several books on it. Um, Start Where You Are is one of them. Be grateful to everyone. She has a system of, of cards that have the slogans on them and commentaries called Always Maintain a Joyful Mind. And then um, Zen teacher Norman Fisher, a number of years ago, wrote a book called Training and Compassion, which we studied when, when Charlie and I first came to Stone Creek together, actually, at Stone Creek. And this was, Norman's, Norman did this great gift in the world of looking at these through a Zen perspective, at least for people like me. <laughs> um, and, and it is a great gift. And it also you know, comes like many gifts, comes with a little bit of danger because it's sort of making these available and accessible. And he makes them, I think his book is written in a way that's super accessible. And also um, we have to, so now the responsibility instead of being on the teacher is now on us as the students to remember over and over again, we have to ground in the preliminaries if we're going to engage with these slogans. And that, and um and maybe there's something to that about the time that we're in. And maybe instead of, maybe instead of saying that this is dangerous, I could say um, the responsibility is shifted onto us. And what will we do with that? Um, Norman does this nice thing in his introduction in the book. He talks about how in, in his experience in Western culture, um, intelligence, quote unquote, <laughs> is, is seen in a pretty limited view. Intelligence is seen in kind of a scientific or rational way. And it's seen as a, a kind of cultivation that's separate from the cultivation of compassion. So in, in cultures that have a more dualistic and separate sense of things, we, there, there is this idea, and I say we, because this is definitely the cultural conditioning I received that intelligence is uh, removed from emotion and it's quote objective. I'm gonna just quote objective. <laughs> because now we know, you know, that science is not objective. Um, and rational thinking is usually a delusion. Um, and Norman offers this, this great contemplation that actually to really steep ourselves and train ourselves in compassion is to cultivate intelligence that in a world of suffering and connectedness, which are really the two essential ingredients of this realm that we are all in, um, it's only intelligent to figure out how to be compassionate and skillful. And so this is a kind of intelligence, like it's a kind of mind training that, that broadens our capacity to respond skillfully in this world. And I think I also wanted to bring them just because um, I find these slogans just so deeply applicable to the situation we all are in together right now in this pandemic and in all this uncertainty and in our social isolation. Um, the point I got to talk about yesterday at City Center because they're doing their practice period started a few weeks ago. 
is the third point about transformation of difficult circumstances into the path of awakening. So hopefully we'll get there in a few weeks together. Um, it's just so every every idea that's brought up in that section is, is just so applicable to what we're working with right now. Um, and so deeply um, supports our capacity to be in this really difficult situation, um, to be with uncertainty, to be with all this pain and loss and open to it and uh, expand as opposed to turn away. And in this time, I feel like um, I've, I've experienced several things and actually a lot of people are having uh, both, which is there's a feeling of slowing down. There's a feeling of like things being like slower and maybe a little more spacious just in our daily lives. And there's also a feeling of speeding up for some people or, or, or more intensifying of pressure or um, like a, a or some, there's a number of people I'm talking to are like, I'm more busy. And, and there's ways I can kind of experience that in my life because I'm, we have children. And so there's homeschooling on top of work, on top of um, just trying to maintain a home. <laughs> and, and there's no, one of the things I think that adds pressure to my life is there's no point at which I'm distinctly anything, you know, it's like, like I, I'm conscious of where my son is right now. Whereas in my life before this situation, I, you know, it's like if I'm at Stone Creek, I'm really there and I'm mostly in one. And that adds a kind of pressure. So there's this simultaneous like slowing down and speeding up. But I think uh, this time is really, it's really ripe with asking us to look at our lives. Whether you know, that's something we want or not. There is the opportunity there in this sheltering in place and in all of this uncertainty and in all the fear that's being evoked. Um, even in the, I, I keep having this experience that I go outside my door and I breathe in in the morning and I am transported to springtime in the 70s when I was a child. And, and, I, and all I think, the only thought I have is like, oh, it smells like springtime when I was a kid, you know. But then I realized this is because um, the air is cleaner. And even just in that reality, you know, like, oh, we have collectively slowed down enough to impact the physical atmosphere in which we are all swimming. Like, what can we learn here? You know, if we're speeding up and we're really all, and all we can focus on is like the pressure and the intensity, we will miss the opportunity to learn the lesson of like, what does it mean that the air is cleaner right now? What does that actually mean for my life? I mean, what can I take from them? So these slogans, I think, support us in that slowing down. Um, the first, there's seven points in this training system and the, um, point one only has one slogan. There's 59 slogans. But this one, they're like, you know, I, the system I think is, is very clearly saying pay attention. <laughs> there's one point, there's only one slogan here. And it's, um, so the point is, the point is called resolve to begin. And the slogan that's under this heading is called train in the preliminaries. Um, traditionally, these preliminaries are something we would train in for like 20 years. And it's grounding ourselves in meditation, and in the four daily contemplations. 
Trungpa calls it inviting yourself into the attitude of sanity. I really like this. He uses the word sanity a lot in relation to this training system. The four daily contemplations are contemplating the preciousness of human birth, the inevitability of death, the kind of potency or indelibility of karma, and the certainty of suffering. And in Norman's book, he expands this to, um, he, he includes the four daily contemplations. And he also says another way we could train in the preliminaries is training for many years in meditation or for Zen students in Zazen practice. Or, and another way he offers is um, that we can engage this idea of resolving to begin by looking at the challenges and difficulties of our life which may or may not be things that we're responsible for or like our fault and deciding, first of all, pulling them into our conscious awareness and then deciding I'm going to work with those. This is the reality of my life. These difficulties are the reality of my life and um, I'm going to own them and work with them. And the way I'm going to work with them is find a, a spiritual practice to engage them. So he opens that a little bit further, but I want to actually stick with the four traditional contemplations and look at what happens to us as human beings when we truly engage these. This situation, since we've been sheltering in place, is it's really, I feel like there's just a number of um, experiences of how quickly human beings adapt, you know, like, you know, we all figured out how to be on Zoom within weeks, <laughs> for example. Um, I was really struck that when the Sonoma County had the order that we had to wear masks going out, there was like, I feel like there was two days where if you went out, we all were kind of either chuckling or commenting or something about one another's masks. And, and then it was like on the third or fourth day, it was like, oh yeah, the masks, you know, <laughs> of course we're wearing the masks, you know, people weren't even saying like, oh, where'd you get your mask? What a nice mask. <laughs> and that had, this is like this beautiful testimony of our resilience as human beings. It's extraordinary that we adapt so quickly to things that are pretty unfamiliar to us. You know, there's some amazing studies about like our, how rapidly we adapt our sense of smell. For example, we just, we can just like, we can just do this thing with our mind where we, we decide that this is how it is and we figure out how to work with it. And it might not feel that way, because I think then we also are very good at resisting reality. But I think we should notice, wow, we're really good at, at um, adapting and being like, oh, this is how it is now. So that is a great gift to us in our lifetimes. And it's a great hindrance to being awake, because there's something about adapting to a situation that allows us to be a little bit sleepy and neurologically that's what it's for actually it's like it allows us to be like okay well since that, this is the given now I can deal with other new input if that thing's going to be the given but I think in our human lives um, our life itself becomes the given and we stop stepping back and being like whoa wow, I'm, I'm alive. I have survived. You know, I've survived past childhood. I'm going to guess that everyone here today is, is past childhood, and, and many of us are well past childhood. It's extraordinary. And, and I think 
we lose sight of it. And it's and it, one of the teachings in this right now in this teaching of the Lojong is like, don't forget, don't go to sleep to how precious this life is. A couple of weeks ago, um, when in preparation for Alice Jean's memorial, I was, uh, I think I mentioned this at the memorial, I was at Stone Creek setting up the altar with her ashes and her and her stuff and her um, rakasu and things from her home and her home altar. And I was listening to the talk that she gave at Stone Creek while I was doing that. And I really, really recommend it uh, for those of us that knew Alice Jean. And even if you didn't, um, it's on our website and the talk is called I Am. And Alice Jean uh, died on April 8th. She was 56 and um, she died after uh, several years of having, knowing that she had cancer and working with cancer. And in her talk, she really is open to that wonderment about human life. And she says, you know, it's a miracle that we get a day of this, let alone 50 years. And it's true. <laughs> and um, it's a miracle that we have consciousness. It's a miracle that we have this capacity to be reflective to be grateful, to be um, in these human bodies. When I last saw Alice Jean, she was, she was talking about just the grief of saying goodbye to the body. And we will, each of us, you know. In my life at home, um, there are days that are more and less challenging right now. And sometimes I, I've noticed if I'm not really attending to being present, um, there's sort of this low-grade overwhelm starts to happen because I'm trying to really pay attention to homeschooling with my son, and then I'm trying to pay attention to work, and then I'm, then I'm a little bit aware of the many things dropped, and and um, housework is like out the window. Like I just look at messes, and I'm like, whatever, <laughs> they'll just be there till September. And this remedy that I found lately is to our son is eight and a half years old, so he's very young and growing rapidly, is to make eye contact with him and really be present. And I just do it occasionally throughout the day. And the thing that happens for me when I do that is the fleetingness of his life is so apparent to me that it's almost intolerable. It like squeezes my heart. But there he is in, in his like, miraculous eight-year-old glory you know <laughs> and it's like and he's in a stage of his life too it's like you can see him growing so the impermanence of the human situation is so apparent and and to do that to look at him and fully see him and see his beautiful fleetingness I have to be open to my own impermanence and um and it makes me realize why we adapt to not paying attention to the miraculousness of our human life because we can't really stand it because it's just so profound. And when I am able to do this, all the things that are like the overwhelm drops away because what matters becomes super apparent. It just goes like click, 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 click. everything just lines up. And what's true is so much easier to see when I have the miraculousness of human life in front of me. And it leads me to the next daily contemplation, which is, um, impermanence and the ability of. I think it's really um, one of the things that we can do right now is look 
deeply and subtly at our minds. We are being supported by this shelter in place to have a slightly less frenetic um, existence. I was mentioning this a couple of talks ago that there's, there's kind of this monastic quality to what's happening to us. And so it's like the background of our life stays relatively the same. And when that happens, the, the in, our internal life becomes more vividly apparent. And we can look and see, you know, what is our relationship to death? And we can compare it to what was it before this whole situation and what is it now? Um, one of the things we might need to contend with is our fear of death and our terror about that and our disbelief. Um, but as we're living in this time, like so many human beings are transitioning out of their lives and into death right now. Of course we feel that. So this, this feeling of impermanence, and in our own lives, we may very well know people who are dying that we didn't expect to be dying right now. And we can really, we can really open to the fullness of that in our life. Like, what does my life look like when I really understand my own impermanence? I think I was given a gift in that my, my mom died in my early adulthood. So my, in my life as a parent, I'm always aware of this. I think because my because I know what it means to not have a mom in the world, or that moms are impermanent, moms are mortal. I think about my mortality in relation to my kids all the time, and you know, you'd think it would have more. <laughs> you'd think I wouldn't lose it as much as I do, <laughs> but I, but it, but it is there for me, and I, I know for certain. Or, and, I, and I hope, actually, that I'll, they'll be in the world without me. I hope that that's how, the order of how we'll leave this world. And I think about it, I think we can all think about it in terms of our sense of relationships and statuses and home, even. If we have, if we move around our house, the feeling like, this is my place and this is my home, and um, we lose sight of the impermanence of that situation, we treat our home differently than if we have a feeling of stewardship and uh, I'm passing through here. I can't think my son and I were contemplating, you know, like the trees outside of our house, they predate the house itself and they will be here hopefully long after we're all gone. The trees alone, let alone the building, you know, hopefully this building will far outlast all of us. And so how that's quite a different engagement than like, it's mine, I'll do whatever I want to it. And it, and almost like it won't even be there when I'm gone. This building will surely be here when I'm gone or some version of it. It helps us to uh, feel an appropriate level of urgency about our activity. And then that um, gently leads us with, with no other way to turn into the next contemplation, which is the potency of an indelibility of karma. Um, this teaching is that every action has a result. Every action, and, and I think for, for those of us in, who are raised in Western context, we can kind of see that almost in that, like in terms of physics, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Do you remember, did, if you remember learning that? I remember like pushing on the table when I was learning that and being like, wow, <laughs> that's atomic reality. Um, but I, I think that, 
we can understand that our actions have outflows. One of the things I think that many of us need to deepen our subtlety around is that so do our words and maybe most importantly, so do our thoughts. That our thoughts actually have this like karmic, they are a karmic substance in the world and they change they change how we act, but they also change the quality of this world. And when I was contemplating this potency of karma as a contemplation, the word that kept coming to my mind was power. It's actually asking us as individual human beings to understand the power of our activity in this world. Um, a lot of us would prefer to think that other people have power. And it's true that other people may have more a larger sphere of influence than, than we do. Um, and that doesn't let us off the hook for how what we do and what we say and what we think and what we feel um, creates the fabric of, of human reality. We are all part of this fabric. And so making a really intense effort around um, our activity on all levels, including, including the ones that we think of as internal and private. Like I was thinking, we're all feeling in some ways like our sphere of influence is quite small. You know, we're moving around just like our houses and our yards. And we could have this feeling of like, well, what I do here doesn't matter. This contemplation is asking us to open it up and realize that the whole world lives in your house and in your mind and in your heart. And so carefully attend to what's going on there. And and when we, lim when we have a limited sphere like this, we're actually, it's a great gift because we can be a little bit more careful when we're not running around like crazy. The last um, daily contemplation is the inescapability of suffering. This is also, you know, in Buddhism is the first noble truth. There is suffering. In this human realm, there is suffering. If we want to investigate this and how it works in our life, you, one of the ways to look in your mind for a formula that looks something like this. If I just blank, then I would be happy. <laughs> and look for those, look for those. Um, the way that the mind offers those up. I see this particularly for myself being raised in the United States that um, with this kind of you know, we have to appreciate how deep material culture is in the United States. And uh, if we were raised here, we were made to be people that use this formula all the time. And we, and, and because it makes us buy stuff. You know? <laughs> and some of the, uh, some occasional pastime that Charlie and I have, we were raised in different parts of the country in, in different um, cultures, actually, in many ways. And, and certainly different environments. And we have these slogans, like these jingles from the 70s that we can rattle off. They're like deep into our, you know, almost like down into our DNA. <laughs> so this, this, we've been trained, the mind was trained in longing for something that was going to make me happy, something out there that was going to make me happy. So this is our opportunity, you know, as we are at home and kind of drawing in, um, what is it that that makes that that we have convinced ourselves that if we have, we'll be happy? And is that true? And another antidote 
is to really ground ourselves in gratitude and, and an attitude of uh, not versus an attitude of longing an attitude of appreciation for what we have. What is here and really seeing how much is here. And then this contemplation asks us to open to, um, and even with all that we have, there will be suffering. This is the quality of human life. Um, even, even in the best of circumstances, even in the, the dearest of relationships, we hurt each other. Even in um, the places where like we're more on vacation and we think we're supposed to be relaxing, there will be tension, you know, like, so allowing that. And the reason for opening to the inescapability of suffering is not to be morose, it's to be aligned with reality. So that when we're expecting something nice and something yucky comes, we are knocked over. And the less we're knocked over, the more able we are to stand in our values and respond compassionately. This is like, this is super important quality of bodhisattvas. Like, oh, I expected that to be nice and it feels horrible. Of course, you know, not don't be surprised, you know, when suffering arises in the places where, where you least expect it, like your whole life <laughs> and my whole life. If we can really ground in this, um, it's a gift to the world. We become somebody who is ready for whatever is coming. And if we're ready, there's this quality of suppleness and pliancy that's quite different from the rigidity and tightness that we feel when we're not ready. The last thing I wanna say about the, um, first, the first point of the mind training and this first slogan is we resolve to begin and we train in the preliminaries as a safeguard against the misapprehension of the slogans. Um, these are not moralistic things. Like an example of, I mean, there's, there's so many slogans and I hope to bring them up over the next few months, but um, one is like, don't be jealous. Or another is don't be tricky. And another is don't expect applause. That's the last one. And what we can do is um, understand that, that we can flip these slogans around and understand that when we are, for example, when we're in a state of jealousy, we are in a place where there's a great hindrance to compassionate and skillful action. When we're in a state of being tricky or manipulative, we're, in, we're grounding in delusion. We think we're separate and there's something to get out of the situation. And when we're expecting applause, we're in the delusion that we are separate and that a whole bunch of conditions haven't come together to allow us for any good and benefit that we're, we're generating. We've lost sight of that. Norman says, these reflections, these four contemplations of, of the great preciousness of human life, of impermanence and inevitable death, of the indelibility of karma, and the inescapability of suffering, they cause us to appreciate the seriousness of our human condition and to recognize that we have to live seriously as we possibly can in response to the gift and the problem that is our life. The gift and the problem of our lives. Training in compassion is actually training in, in this great intelligence again and this resilience in this world. It's inviting sanity. And maybe the most important thing to understand about engaging this first mind training uh, endeavor is 
It's not something we do once and then go beyond. Resolving to begin is a moment after moment commitment. So we begin and then we begin again and we begin again and then we begin and we begin again. We ground ourselves in the profundity of this human experience before we move into the world, before we even move into thinking if we can, so that we can offer this great protection of the Dharma um, to ourselves and to all beings. Thank you.